Psalm 45. To the chief musician set to the lilies a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your father shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, it's as obvious as we read through Psalm 45, it is a wedding psalm. And we all like weddings, right? Maybe not so much the planning or the preparing, but certainly the ceremony and the celebration, right? We love weddings. It's a special day for both the bride and the groom as they make their commitment to be a one flesh union before God and their, friend, uh, their friends and their family. Marriage is not an archaic human right that perpetuates the patriarchy, but a glorious institution ordained by God at the very beginning of human creation. But we also know from the Bible that marriage is a mystery. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, where he says this, that is marriage, is a great mystery. For I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the blessed union of a man and a woman in the bonds of holy matrimony is a picture that points to the blessed union between Christ and his church, his bride. Now, as we look at Psalm 45, we're going to see a royal wedding between a king and his chosen bride. Now, some scholars believe that Psalm 45 was a wedding song that was dedicated to the marriage of David's son, King Solomon, when he married the daughter of Pharaoh in Egypt. But as we'll soon see, uh, Psalm 45 is really 
a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points forward to the glorious wedding between Christ and his church at his return. In fact, so glorious is this wedding that the psalmist, the sons of Korah, can hardly contain themselves as they compose this song where he says in verse 1, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The psalmist cannot wait to tell you the glorious riches of this marriage between the king and his bride. So as we look at Psalm 45 this morning, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see the glory of the bridegroom in verses 2 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 15, the glory of the bride. And the main idea or the big idea for this morning is that Jesus, the great king, will return to reclaim his bride, the church. Jesus, the great king, will return to claim his bride, the church. Now, as I said at the outset, a fair number of scholars and commentators, they look at Psalm 45 as a wedding psalm or as a royal psalm, one that celebrates the wedding of King Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. And we're told in that verse that Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this is something that we see throughout all of human history, right? Marriage is for the purpose of political alliances. King Solomon wanted to solidify his purpose, so he marries himself to the daughter of Pharaoh to form a union not only between himself and his wife, but between the two nations. Now, of course, we also know from the story of Solomon that he was famous or maybe rather infamous for his many brides and his many concubines, right? But here, Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh was his first wife. It was his first wife. Now, another thing we can also note about Psalm 45 is that it paints an exquisitely uh, splendid portrait of the king. If this were indeed a wedding song for Solomon or any other Davidic king, it would paint a very favorable picture of the king. In fact, one could say it paints an impossibly favorable picture of the king. Now, maybe one can chalk this up to artistic license of the psalmist. Maybe the psalmist is engaging in a little bit of exaggeration and hyperbole as he describes the the glory of the king and the beauty of the bride. But again, we must not miss that this psalm has, what we said earlier, a messianic flavor to it, a messianic theme to it. In other words, the psalm is expectant and it looks forward to the greater son of David, the Messiah, the one who embodies all of these qualities to perfection. And as we progress through this psalm, keep your eyes and ears open to uh, how what is said, being said here points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing the psalmist here does is he, he addresses the king. He speaks to the king And note the description of the king here that he he lays out in verses 2 through 5, where he says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Now, I'm sure that Solomon, if this was indeed Solomon, was fair, perhaps even fairer than most men. In fact, in the Song of Songs, uh, Solomon is described there 
by his uh, betrothed as the apple tree among the trees of the wood. So is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In fact, Jesus himself says that Solomon was splendidly arrayed when he says in Matthew 6, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they are grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So while Solomon was indeed fair, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is fairer than the sons of men. Now, the question I have for you, though, is do we take the beauty of Jesus seriously? Do we take the time to see the beauty of Jesus? Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus, uh, physically at least, did not stand out. He was not something, you know, he was not a man over whom you would say, wow, what a glorious looking man. But the person of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, is the full glory of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ. And his physical, his, his physical appearance may not have stood out, but John says in the Gospel of John that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and we beheld his glory. Now we're also told here of the graciousness of the speech of the king. Now again, Solomon was wise. He was wise, wiser than all men. In fact, his 3,000 Proverbs in, that we have recorded in the Bible attest to his great wisdom. But the beauty and grace of Jesus' speech far surpasses that of Solomon. Think of the many ways Jesus spoke grace to the most needy of people. Think of the gracious words that Jesus spoke to the worst of sinners. Think of even the words of truthful rebuke Jesus spoke to his enemies. Always seeking reform. Always seeking the repentance of those to whom he spoke. Never just to win an argument. But more than just his beauty and gracious speech is the king's skill in battle. Now here's something that properly speaking really doesn't apply to Solomon. Solomon was not a warrior king like his father David was. David was a man of war. In fact, he was such a man of war that he had shed much blood and he had made great wars. So accomplished was he in in military combat that he was not allowed to build the house of the God because he was a man of blood. But Jesus, the greater David, the greater son of David, is also a man of war. Now, again, we don't see this too much during his earthly ministry, though he did defeat sin and death and Satan through his own death and resurrection. But for sure, during his return at the end of the age, we see Jesus on a glorious white horse. And we said, now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and him who sat on it was called faithful and true. And his righteousness in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus is a warrior king. He is a conquering king. And he comes at the end of the age with a sword girded upon his thigh with glory and majesty. 
And the psalmist say that, says that this king fights for truth, for humility, and for righteousness. And we see that this king is victorious as well, as his sharp arrows are in the hearts of his enemies, and the peoples fall under him. This glorious warrior king not only conquers his enemy and secures his kingdom, but he also fights for his bride, the church. Jesus will return to claim his bride, the church, and he does so as a conquering king. Now again, Jesus fought for his bride during his earthly ministry by defeating sin and death on the cross, thereby purifying his bride with his blood. But when Jesus returns, he will defeat his and our enemies and finally and fully, thereby securing his bride for all eternity. Now, as we come here to verses six through nine, we see the psalmist now speak about the king's reign, how the king will reign in his kingdom. And here, verses six and seven are cited. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes about this. He, he quotes these verses in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, to show how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, these verses 6 and 7, uh, if you look at them with me one more time, verses 6 and 7 say, For your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. These verses are a clear Old Testament reference to the deity of Jesus Christ and to the doctrine of the Trinity. For these words can be said of no other earthly king than Jesus, the great king. The throne from which Jesus reigns is an eternal throne. His scepter is his scepter of righteousness. And the reign of Messiah will be an eternal reign of righteousness. Jesus came the first time to bring righteousness to his people. And when he returns, the kingdom he establishes will be one in which evil has been vanquished. And he will rule with his righteous ones. Now in verse 7 we see the anointing of the king. Because he is a righteous king who hates wickedness, he has been anointed with the oil of gladness. And in all Israel, all kings, all priests, all prophets were anointed with oil, signifying their calling to serve God. But Jesus has a special anointing by God as God's beloved son. Jesus was anointed to be the prophet, the priest, the king. In fact, we see this in Psalm 2 as Jesus is anointed to be the great king on God's holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2, verse 6. And then verses 8 and 9 speak about how the king's royal garments are perfumed with costly herbs and the splendor of his royal court. Now, all in all, the picture here of the glory of the bridegroom or the king is a sight to behold. But what is our response to this? We asked earlier whether or not we see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Do we see him as our conquering hero king who comes to establish his eternal reign of righteousness? Because that's how the psalmist sees him. That's how this psalmist portrays Jesus Christ, the king as one who conquers, who sets up his eternal throne. 
We can read about Jesus and marvel at his teaching in the Gospels and his wisdom. We can be taken aback by his grace and truth. We can even be moved by his sacrificial death for our sin. But do we see his glory and his majesty? Do we see him as our victorious king? Now, especially when we consider Psalm 45 in relation to the Psalms we've seen so far, Psalms 42, 43, and 44. If you remember a couple of weeks back when we looked at Psalms 42 and 43, we saw the psalmist there battle with the demons of his own heart and his mind as he commands his tormented soul to hope in God because that is the only place I can put my hope when I'm feeling depressed, when I'm feeling the weight of my own oppression upon me. Hope in God. And then last week we saw in Psalm 44, the psalmist cry aloud to God to awake and to vindicate him as he laments the scorn of his enemies. Well, here in Psalm 45, we see God respond to both the internal torments of our hearts and the external torment uh, persecutions from external tormentors. And it doesn't matter what troubles you're going through right now. God hears you, and he has sent his anointed son, Jesus Christ, to rescue you. And the church of Jesus Christ has been afflicted for her whole history. But through, uh, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus sustains his bride, the church, through our earthly veil of tears. And upon his return, Jesus will rescue and vindicate us as our conquering hero king. Well, now the psalmist turns in verses 10 through 15 to talk to the bride. And he addresses her first in verses 10 and 12, where the beloved of the king is instructed to forget your own people and your father's house. And this echoes what God has said in Genesis 2.24. When he first institutes marriage between Adam and Eve, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman. And both parties then must leave their families in order to form the new family unit. And similarly with the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ, we are called to leave our own people. This is a call for Christians that coming to Christ is to leave or forsake the world. We need to forsake our worldliness as we come to Christ. And just as a marriage is doomed to failure if the in-laws are too intrusive, if you know what I mean, when your in-laws are a little too close for you and they continue to nitpick at everything you do, so too, in our spiritual marriage with Christ, we cannot let our attachment to the world get in the way of our union with Christ. But furthermore, the beloved of the king must worship him because he is your Lord. Now, we know in the the New Testament, Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives. That's in Ephesians 5. And since marriage is a mystery that points to the relationship between Christ and the church, the church must submit to to Jesus as her Lord. Christ is not only worthy of our submission to him as Lord, but you can also say that he has earned our submission as well. 
Christ is worthy because he is a great king and savior. We learned this earlier in the psalm. But Christ is also fairer than the sons of men. And when we really realize that he is full of grace and truth, we should want to worship him. And doing so makes the church beautiful to him. He will greatly desire our beauty. Now in verse 12, we see that the rich and famous of the world come to bring their gifts to the bride. It says the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Now Tyre was a mercantile capital during the reign of Solomon and many riches and goods came from there. And the idea here is that the rich and powerful from all over the world will come bearing gifts and seeking the favor of the bride. Now we certainly don't see the people of the world flocking to flood the church with their riches today, right? And in fact, if anything, the world hates or marginalizes the church. And that's because the church right now is not in her glorified state. Right now, the church seems weak and foolish. And this is just how the world treated Jesus, right? When he was working miracles and multiplying fish and loaves, the world loved him. They loved him for the free meals that they got. They loved him for the healing. They loved him for all the things that he did. But then when he calls them to repent, when he gives them a hard saying, that's when people turned away. And because the world hated him, they will hate us too. But when the king returns in glory and his bride is displayed in all her glory, the world will change her tune, right? Revelation 21, 20, verses 24 through 26 speak about the glories of the church. And here we see that the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. This is the new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The end of the age when Christ returns and the new Jerusalem comes down, the church comes down out of heaven in all of her beauty and glory, then the nations of the world will bring their riches and honor and glory to the church. And finally, in verses 13 through 15, we see the royal bride decked out and brought before her bridegroom. And notice how the bride is clothed. She is clothed glorious within the palace clothing of woven in gold, robes of many colors. Now, of course, in our modern day, the culture, uh, our modern day culture, uh, the focus on the wedding is all on the bride, right? She is the center of attention. She is the one arrayed in a beautiful gown. And when she enters into the church, the gathered crowd rises as she proceeds down the aisle to the front of the altar. But in the first century uh, marriage, the focus would have been on the bridegroom. And we see this especially in Jesus' parable of the, the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. And in this parable, we see that everyone is awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. And when he arrives, the whole town goes out to meet him. And then the custom was that the bridegroom would then go in, retrieve his bride, and take her to his home where they would, would be wed, and then the marriage would be consummated. Now, I'll say all of this, uh, that while the bride is described in beautiful garments, the focus is that she has been made beautiful so that she shall be brought to the king. That is the main po point here. Now, bringing this into the church, we need to realize that we as Christians have no glory in and of ourselves. We are made glorious through our union with Christ. And going back to Ephesians 5, Paul tells us 
that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. As we said earlier in Revelation, the church is described as the new Jerusalem, having the glory of God. In Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The church will be glorious, but it will be a glory given to us by virtue of our union with Christ. And it is because of our union with Christ, because we are his betrothed, that we should separate ourselves from the world. Not in a sort of like I'm going to live as a hermit kind of way, separation, but like John tells us when he says, do not love the world, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We cannot have two loves, beloved. In other words, we cannot have a divided loyalty. We either love Christ and worship him, or we're just playing at church while loving the world and the things in the world. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, we cannot serve two masters. Jesus wants a bride who has been sanctified. And we are sanctified when we read and study and meditate upon God's word, when we prioritize private and corporate worship, when we fellowship with the saints and avoid the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil will always try to lure you away with the pleasures of this world. But have you noticed how much the things of this world promise and how little they deliver? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying avoid the world like the plague, but what I am saying is guard your hearts. Guard your hearts and use discernment. Avoid prioritizing the pleasures of this world over worship and the communion of the saints. Because the more we see Jesus as fairer than the sons of men, the easier it is to avoid the lures and temptations of the world. Well, Psalm 45 ends with a benediction pronounced on the king in verses 16 and 17, where we see, Instead of your father shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Now, this is a blessing that the marriage between the king and his bride will have abundant offspring. That's what we see here. There should be many sons who will be princes in all the earth. There's also a blessing for an eternal name and praise for the king. God has promised to King David that his house and kingdom shall be established forever. That was a promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel. And this is the happily ever after you see in so many stories and fairy tales. But in this case, it's true. We mentioned it earlier. There's a relationship between Psalms 42 through 44 and Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is the answer to the problems and the questions and the concerns that you see in Psalms 42 through 44. 
And no matter what's going on in the world today, we need to hold fast to our faith. You may be thinking, well, you don't know what I'm going through. And you know what? You're right. I don't know exactly what you're going through. And I will never know the full extent of what you're going through. But there's one person who does know the full extent of what you're going through. And that person is Jesus Christ, our great King and our Bridegroom. He has gone through more than what we could ever know. And he did so in order to sanctify his bride. And when he returns in glory, he is going to take us to be with him forever. That's what he told his disciples in John 14, 3. And we are told that the new heavens and the new earth, all the things that are wrong with this world will have been done away with. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is a promise that is only available to those who are in Christ, who have received him and have believed in his name. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I urge you to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ died to save you from your sins. And if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, all of these things will be given unto you. Let's pray.